This is a drink with a friend. I am Tish Oxenreiter. Normally, Seth is with me at the table, but he is on a work trip all week doing something lawyery that I do not understand. So I am chatting with my lovely friend, Joy Clarkson. Hello, Joy. Hello, Tish. It's lovely to be having a drink with you. Exactly. Same, same. What are you drinking right now? I am drinking, um, I, I will admit that I, I strongly considered having a glass of the Pinot Noir that I got last night with the cheese and sourdough bread that I retrieved for myself on the walk mm-hmm. home today. But then I thought that might be a little extreme for 2 p.m. So I am drinking, <laughs> um, <laughs> I am drinking a, um, actually the tea, we're, we're about to talk about my book. And my publisher put together this lovely box, and I hadn't actually tried the tea that they put in it yet, which is titled Happy. So I'm drinking the Happy Tea, which I think is like <laughs> green tea and pomegranates. It's very floral and floral, nice. but also caffeinated. <laughs> I was going to say it has to be caffeinated if it's called Happy, <laughs> I would think. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So <laughs> that is what I'm drinking. <laughs> Well, and it wouldn't be the first time if you were to drink some wine or some sort of cocktail at 2 p.m. on the show because we (laughs) know what it's like to release books and have long weeks. And so um, no shame in that game. And you are actually talking at to something. I am talking to you at eight in the morning, my time. So I'm drinking plain old black coffee because Mm. that is what I do at eight in the morning. And it is from Summer Moon, which is a lovely local coffee shop here. And it's delightful, like it always is. So that's what I'm up to. And that means I'm in Texas and you're in the UK. Mm-hmm. And you're there to do what exactly? Tell us why you're there. Um, well, that's a great mysterious question. I mean, the the, the easiest way to answer it is that I <laughs> just finished a PhD in theology and the arts at St. Andrews University. And, um, just a few months ago. And so now I'm doing, I work for plow quarterly as their books and culture editor, but then I also do various, uh, I like to think I do various scholarly things. Um, and so I'm hanging around Oxford, um, writing and Mm -hmm. podcasting and researching and editing and, um, and, and, uh, enjoying the daffodils, which are starting to bloom quite early this year. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's fun. Mm -hmm. I think Oxford is a great town for being scholarly or at least pretending to be scholarly, you know, sitting at a coffee shop and staring forlornly Mm. out a window and hoping something brilliant comes into your head. I love that town. That is, yes. And it's funny, one of my friends um, talks about the Oxford goblins, all of us who end up hanging around after having spent time here, even though we're not officially affiliated with the (laughs) university. So for the time being, I am one of the Oxford goblins. (laughs) Well, you know, you you are probably in good company seeing as all the amazing uh, people who have spent time in those hallowed halls. So you're in good company, I would think. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. So you already mentioned this, your book is out and um, you and I were just talking about the weird season of book releasing, but I think your book is so timely for Mm -hmm. uh, the world around us. So tell me a little bit more about it. And I actually know why your book is titled the way it is because I remember seeing that actual tweet. So tell us a little bit more. Oh, do you remember that? <laughs> That's really funny. Um, I do, yeah, actually. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the book is titled, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story of the title of the tweet and then talk a little bit about the book. Um, okay. The book is titled Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. And that 
that title I owe to an interaction on Twitter. Um, I don't, do you remember what I tweeted about? Mm-mm. No. Okay. It was something oh, no. innocuous. I, it was something about, I, 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 my guess, my best guess is that it was about tea or lipstick. <laughs> um, and someone responded and said, um, this is disgusting. You're so aggressively happy. And like, you know, he's kind of teasing, but like also kind of not teasing. And I was like, you know what? Right. I like that in this, in this tired old world full of reasons to not be happy. Finding happiness does take a certain level of aggressiveness. So I thanked him <laughs> and added it to my uh, Twitter bio. And I actually, fun fact, am sending a copy of the book to the person who uh, tweeted that to me. So that's fun. I love that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so that was the original kind of, that's the title of the book. And and the the idea behind it is, is kind of captured in that. Um, I mm-hmm. feel like we live in a world... It's funny, I proposed this book in like January of 2019. Um, so before all of the disruption and difficulties and craziness of the last two years. And already at that point, my idea behind it was I felt like when I looked at the world, there's kind of this tendency towards and even preference towards cynicism, I think. Like this kind of sense that, mm-hmm. uh, and I got this a lot on Twitter, um, which is part of why I enjoyed the comment. The sense that if you express happiness or enjoyment or kind of soft heartedness, that you're either ignorant of what's happening in the world, you just haven't experienced many difficult things, so you're just kind of green, or you're indifferent to the feelings of others. There's kind of a sense that, you know, if you're really wise and deep and you were really paying attention, you would either be kind of cynical and hard and knowing and kind of you know, I love this useful phrase um, that a French philosopher uses, the hermeneutic of suspicion, that, you know, everyone would kind of, um, Paul Ricoeur said that, you know, come at the world with kind of a, you interpret everything through a a cynical sideways glance. Um, Or you, and I think, and a lot of people, I see this, just that you would be kind of just, uh, you'd be a puddle all the time. You'd just be constantly um, devastated by the state of the world. And, and I think there's reasons for people to feel both those ways. And I feel both those ways from time to time as well. But I think in my own life, I've, I felt like it's not, I think there are people who are happy, who have a true slice of happiness and joy and hope. And that that's, that, that true achievement of that is actually something that's much more difficult and in some ways much deeper, but also is in many ways, much more helpful to ourselves and to the people around us. And if you share a, a, a Christian view of the world or a, a hopeful view of the world, it also kind of tells what's true about reality. So the book is kind of a manifesto of 10 chapters about why and how to find and, and patch together a life of, of deep happiness um, mm-hmm. in response and in spite of kind of the cynicism and weariness and pain of the world. Not Not looking away from those things, but trying to figure out how, how to look life square in the face. And as Wendell Berry says, rejoice though you have considered all the facts. Yeah. And, you know, I love what you say at the beginning too, because you talk about the three reasons there, well, you name at least three reasons we should pursue happiness. And the third one really gets into that. It's this idea of, um, because it's true, ultimately, I don't remember how you worded it, but that's really the reason why. And that, yeah, it's easy to think we should 
go through life angry all the time because there's a lot mm-hmm. to be angry about. But that instead, I love, I think you make the connection with Frodo and Samwise on, on um, Mount Doom and uh, Samwise reflecting on the strawberries and mm-hmm. at the Shire. And that whenever Frodo can no longer remember them, you know, Samwise has that amazing scene where he carries him. But the idea of remembering the strawberries is the reason why we should pursue this sort of happiness because of the Mount Doom around us. Yeah. I think something we forget a lot of times I is that the very way, the very reaction we have to injustice or to pain or to sorrow is because we have some notion that the world isn't the way it should be, which implies Mm -hmm. a knowledge both of a way the world should be, but also even just a, goodness we've experienced in the world that we are not currently experiencing but either way that that not goodness is connected with with goodness and i think that um the more in touch we are with that with with the strawberries with the the more energized and undefeated and un, un, indefatigable we are in the face of of deep difficulty it's not a denial of difficulty it's more like we understand we experience anger at injustice precisely because we know we have some notion of what justice and goodness and strawberries are, you know? Mm -hmm. That's right. And you mentioned, I love this part too, where you talk about that it actually takes work, like cultivating happiness, you say takes grit, determination, and a good sense of humor. It's a lot of work. And to me, that was so helpful to hear you say that because, you know, I've known you for a bit, your family for a while, and um, you do seem like your namesake in a way. You seem <laughs> to embody that well. Um, but I also know what it's like, you know, on a screen versus real life and that things aren't always what they seem. And so I think some people uh, have that experience as well. They know of people who just seem to like be naturally happy and are feeling this like a very awareness of all the hard things and feeling like, why can't I just flip a switch and be happier? And I love that you say that. Mm -hmm. No, this takes works and it's something we have to cultivate. Yeah. It was funny. I was trying to remember who I was talking to recently and they were like, I just want to like change my brain chemistry uh, to be happier. And I was like, but he's like, but I can't do that. And I thought on two, there's two things that made me think that one is like, that's a real thing. You know, I talk about this in the book, but I'm, Mm-hmm. Scotch Irish, we have a yeah. long family yeah. history of OCD and depression and anxiety and bipolar and like, you know, you name it, we've got it. Um, so there's some level at which like, I know I get I get the just dis- dispositional melancholy. I get that. But also, on the other hand, right. um, like when you talk about brain patterns, you actually do have brain patterns based on how you interact with the world. And when you choose to cultivate things like thankfulness and and generosity to others, it does in fact change your brain patterns as well. So I think, I think there's a sense that Mm. I I love somebody I I respect says happiness is always a result. It's either the result of, of good, good, joyful things happening in your life, or it's a result of, of kind of a a practice of how you engage with the world. You know, it, it, happiness doesn't come from nowhere. And that was helpful for me thinking about both of those things, really soaking in the good moments, but also practicing, practicing things that help us be happy, you know. That's helpful for me to hear as well. And I think it's helpful, you know, I'm not sure how much we've talked about this, but I also teach high school English twice a week. And so I'm around 
teenagers, adolescents a lot, um, particularly like the 16 to 18 year old crowd. And one thing I have found interesting, although I know it was the case when we were that age that, you know, you just do tend to have a little bit of a, a snark about life, but <laughs> maybe this is since the pandemic, but maybe even a little bit more, there is just this classic idea of, um, if like what you had said earlier, if you are smart or if you are realistic, then you are cynical and that you are mm-hmm. kind of um, you have a chip on your shoulder. And so I see this with the adolescents a lot, but I think it's helpful to hear that idea. I tell them a lot that it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way mm-hmm. into a new way of acting. And I know yes. that sounds very momish of me and they might roll their eyes, but I think there's such wisdom in that that just takes so a lot of experience to learn that firsthand, you know? Yeah. Well, and I also think that, you know, I give, I give all the, that age a, um, a break because it's kind of like a little bit in Narnia when I think it's in line, there's the wardrobe. I can't remember when, um, Lewis has the foreword where he's like, I wrote this for Lucy. Now you're too old to read it, but someday you'll be, um, old enough to enjoy books like this again. And I feel like that's the case. A lot of high schoolers and similarly, like I, I taught freshmen at St. Andrews and I just, I chuckle um, at the the unearned cynicism. Yes, you're like you you don't you you don't have the reason to be quite this cynical yet. (laughs) Although they also are in a very difficult world. I love that unearned cynicism. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, totally that too. So um, I actually think that is such a great segue to the to the bit I really wanted to chat with you about, about um, where you talk in chapter four, I think, about enjoying things unironically. And that's what I want mm-hmm. to um, tell these kids sometimes. Like, it's okay to just enjoy the things you enjoy. You don't have to be cool. Um, mm-hmm. It reminds me, I don't know if you ever saw Portlandia, but there's this one um, little clip where they're both trying to outdo each other on what all they've read. Like, did you read the piece in the Mm -hmm. New York times? Oh yeah, I read that. Did you read this? Oh yeah, I read that. Um, and they go back and forth and back and forth. And, um, in some ways it reminds me a little bit of this flipped idea of, of the hipster, like not liking something if it's cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so I don't know, tell me more about what your thoughts are on enjoying things unironically. What do you mean by that? Oh, that's a great question. Also, I've thought about that. I think some of this chapter emerged from living, emerged from two things, living in the UK and, um, and being <laughs> online too much. Um, <clears throat> because both Twitter and British people have a hard time not blushing <laughs> about just like enjoying things, just period, you know? And I think, <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that chapter, uh, I, I, I opened talking about this. Um, my brother has this discussion group called the Overthinkers, and they did this this week where they were like, what are your guilty pleasures? And everyone, everyone, and I answered very quickly. And I was like, um, love is blind and Indian matchmaker, because those are genuinely my guilty pleasures. You know, like, I'm like, mm, okay, they're like, you know, not the, <laughs> not the most um, intellectually beneficial might be a little bit of sh- schadenfreude. Um, and everybody else answered things like, <laughs> you know, the 1995 BBC Pride and Prejudice. And I was like, that is so objectively not a guilty pleasure. Like, I don't know. I don't. Right. And, and I was reflecting on it and I was reflecting on it. And then I realized that like on Twitter, if you say you like anything, you will get, you'll get a whole bunch of people who are like, yeah, I love it too. And then you will inevitably get some person who will prove to you that liking that thing is like either like 
stupid or old fashioned or like problematic in some way. And which I think gives people this kind of like, again, it's the, it's the kind of looking behind the shoulder, um, you know, uh, a fear of that. And so I was just reflecting on that, um, attitude, which I think is fairly pervasive, uh, of kind of just being afraid to admit you enjoy things. I think it's two parts. There's being afraid to admit you enjoy things, but it's also kind of looking behind your shoulder when you do enjoy something. Um, Mm. and I, and I don't mean like, I do think there are genuine guilty pleasures. Like there are genuine, like things that you should feel guilty about enjoying because they're not good for you or other people. So, you know, right. Right. We'll put that aside, but but just the feeling of when there's innocent things you enjoy, whether it's a book series or a, you know, whatever, that feeling of being unable to admit you like it or being unable to just let yourself really enjoy something. So I was mm-hmm. reflecting on that. And as I did reflect on it, I think that actually um, the things that prevent us from either one of those things, admitting it or actually letting ourselves enjoy things are both pretty powerful, powerfully have the potentially powerfully negative in the sense that, um, well, I talk about this in the book. I'm just re-talking through the chapter, but you know, it, I love it. It, it keeps us from uh, bonding, making friendships with other people, because if we can't admit we like things, then um, that's really a practice of self-knowledge and self-disclosure, which is a pretty important part of being able to form friendships and form relationships. Um, and also it keeps us from from being able to bond with other people, because I think one of the best thing, one of the best ways to have friendships is not to just kind of endlessly need another person, but to have some mutual thing that you love together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that, um, yeah, I think enjoying things is a part of receiving life as a gift and knowing that life is good we can just have a general sense of guilt, you know, around enjoying things at all. Uh, And I talk about that as my, my, uh, everyone has a tiny Puritan. um, Yes. I was going to ask you about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what I meant by that is we all, I think to, to varying degrees, a lot of us have this just kind of guilty voice. That's like, I don't know. I think you're enjoying that a little too much. I don't know. Um, It's really good to enjoy things. And I actually think that that prevents us from experiencing life as a gift that God gives to us. You know, I love the passage in um, James where it says, every good and perfect gift comes from God in whom there is no um, shifting shape or shadow. You know, that sense Mm -hmm. that God really does give good gifts. and, Mm -hmm. And if we don't let ourselves enjoy life, if we don't receive it as a gift, we're not really living in humility before God. And that may sound extreme, but I think that's true. And the flip side of that is that, you know, the other reason we might not enjoy things and ironically is because we feel bad enjoying things because the world is falling apart, Right. which is often what Twitter is on about. That's often you get. And, but I think that again, it's that simple. If you don't know life is a gift, you don't know what a precious gift it is and you don't let yourself relish and delight in it. Then how will you know what to fight and protect and enjoy and see as sacred and hallowed. And so to me, enjoying something unironically, just letting yourself relish in it and share in it with another person and delight is, is a really healthy practice because it's, it's a way to connect with people. It's a way to receive life as a gift and receiving life as a gift reminds us that goodness is at the heart of reality, not brokenness, not loss. And it, Mm -hmm. and it energizes us to be people who support that. 
So that's my yeah. very rambling answer. I'm sure yeah. I've gotten a more reasonable way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious if you see a connection between this idea and gratitude. Like, you know, I, I have cultivated this practice, this habit now for several years now of writing three things I'm grateful for every morning. And I make sure mm-hmm. to make them as specific as possible so that it's not just like coffee or good weather, but like something really specific, like this really fun yellow mug that I'm drinking my coffee out of, or my dog's derpy ears and the way they flop whenever she's running, you know, like I get Mm -hmm. really specific. And um, that has really changed my, uh, just the way I start my day. Do you see a connection with that and loving things in this regard? I'm curious. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like that also just relates to happiness in general, because if we like have happiness dependent on these like huge, big open-ended questions, and like happiness is dependent on huge, big things, right? Like it's hard when big areas of your life have huge question marks or wounds over them to feel happy. But if you, if you decrease kind of the field of vision to what makes you happy to really specific things, you just, it's like you have more happiness hits at your access. I don't know if that makes sense, but you start to realize, and then you realize that it was always there. I kind of thought this during the lockdown, oddly, um, because, you know, I was, I had this very limited space because mm. we literally couldn't leave in our houses pretty much in the UK for the first one. You, you could only go to the grocery store. Um, but I, I started just like really relishing having a cup of really strong coffee with cream in it I, I, every morning. And I would sit in my little concrete stoop. It wasn't very nice. And our garden was totally overgrown because a gardener came and they told us we couldn't touch it. But I would sit in my stoop and I would have my really strong coffee. And it was just so enjoyable. And I thought, this was always available to me. But because I wasn't taking the moment to recognize it and relish it, I was missing out on this opportunity of gratefulness that Mm -hmm. then kind of deprived me of happiness. So yeah, there's something about, I think that smaller field and greater specificity that um, helps us see how much of life is a gift in in the details. And also that just brings a lot of happiness. I thought that too, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, in Texas, we weren't nearly on as tight a a lockdown as many places around the world, but we still had to stay close to home and traffic went, came to a standstill. And there was this weird kind of paradoxical feeling I had, like a tension I almost felt where it's like, yeah, a global pandemic is not good, but there's something kind of deeply in me that I don't know if I'm like happy or glad this is happening, but there's Mm -hmm. almost a little bit of a pressure valve release um, Mm -hmm. where expectations have been lowered so much about like, where we need to be and when that we can start enjoying things like daily walks in around the neighborhood and fiddling Mm -hmm. in the garden and another cup of coffee. And I felt almost a bit like what you say, you know, I think you talk about this idea of like the social justice sadist and the benighted cynic, Mm -hmm. like I should be outraged at the pandemic and all the policies around it. But I found myself breathing a weird sigh of relief almost. And that felt weird to me. I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm sure we all have piled on many other neuroses in place, you know, of the ones that we we left. But I do think I think part of that is just I think life isn't human sized anymore. Do you know what I mean? We yes, I, I, I think I was reading an article recently about 
she basically said, you know, we are wired psychologically, emotionally, physically to be able to handle a village, to be able to handle the emotional weight and, and work and problems of my village, my people, maybe a couple hundred people, but like this, this purview. Whereas now we're asked to care about the whole world in a way that we just don't have the capacity for, you know, no matter how, how, how well-meaning we are, it's just, it's hard. And so I think part of the relief of that was, and I know this is for me too, um, just having the scope of our attention scaled down to a more human level, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's that thing called Dunbar's number. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Mm. It's an anthropologist who, who made that observation that it seems like humans have a capacity for about 150 relationships. And we're talking not even just close relationships, but like the person who brings the mail and yeah. you know, <laughs> the person who bags your groceries, that's, that's a relationship. And we really only have the capacity. And so when we think of how we've added social media to the mix where you have thousands of people at your fingertips, um, it's it's no wonder we feel mm-hmm. kind of subhuman about things. And you mentioned this, you say, um, realistically, the amount of time we spend doom scrolling is not commensurate, commensurate with uh, our positive contribution to the welfare of society. <laughs> and you actually say, and I think this is uh, uh, on top of that, the catatonic dread of imminent environmental catastrophe neither makes the world better, nor does it enable us to be helpful or useful to our neighbor. So I think not only does doom scrolling affect our ability to find those little p- bits of happiness, but it actually also hinders us from being in that village well, you know, mm-hmm. loving our neighbor well in the most literal sense of things. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that was a big part of this book is I, I think this kind of pursuit of aggressive happiness, I don't think of it as just like, I want to make my own life as happy as I can. I think there's also the sense that we do affect the people around us and, um, and that being intentional about our own attunement to the world does make a difference for the people around us and does make us more or less capable of responding to the needs of people in our, in our village, on our street, you know, um, And that really matters and not, not, and kind of, and I think I just would really encourage people to not expect, we need to encourage each other towards that and not be like, Oh no, Tish hasn't posted enough about this, this big environmental, you know, whatever it is, we need to encourage each other to care about what is close to us. And, and, um, and not, I don't mean this in a a mean way, but not encourage each other to virtue signal in such a way that we're not actually attending to the things in front of us. Amen. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, I'm doing this thing the first six months of 2022 of um, trying to do my best to live my life within a hundred mile radius, which in the UK is actually a rather large circle. So I, you know, maybe translate that to like 30 kilometers or 40 kilometers or whatever, but a hundred miles in Texas where everything is sprawling is pretty you know, reasonable. And it has been such a joy. Like, yeah, there are challenges, but, you know, actually driving to the farm to pick up the milk that was milked mm-hmm. that day, there's something so genuinely, unironically enjoyable about like milk mm-hmm. whenever you know who milked the cow that morning. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's something to be said about making your life smaller to make your life happier. I don't know. Yeah, I would definitely agree. So I am curious. I, I don't know if you remember this. One of my favorite things you have tweeted before, it was several years now, but you talked about how um, sometimes there's this like 
highbrow approach to things like the classics where if you find out someone hasn't read it, uh, you think like, oh my gosh, what kind of, how have you lived? <laughs> um, but that instead we should have this approach of like, oh, what a treat you have in front of you. How great is mm. this? And to me, there's a little bit of this flip side of the mm. same coin, this idea of almost not wanting to enjoy something that you, I don't want to say not enjoy something, but try something because you feel like you feel ashamed that you haven't yet gone there. Does that make any sense? I don't know if there's a connection here. Yes. No, there definitely is. So I think the tweet you're talking about, which was, I, it was my first big viral tweet. Um, <laughs> and it was, to- it was totally overwhelming because it, it got like several hundred thousand likes. And I was like, what in the world? What did the algorithm do? Um, but I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something to the extent to the, to the pretty much what you said was basically, you know, we shouldn't make people feel guilty for not having read classics. We should lead with our delight. And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think it's a funny thing because like, I've definitely read some really good books because I was pretentiously trying to catch up with other people. And then I ended up really enjoying them. So like, sometimes it can work out. Um, yeah, totally. But I do do think that there's just, yeah, there, I think there's a sense of, I, what I really want everyone to do is just ask myself, is this good? Am I enjoying it? Rather than being like, mm. is this, is this making me the right kind of person that I want to be? You know what I mean? Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and I think, I think that's the thing is getting past as much as we can, the question of like the perception in other people's eyes and getting down to the question of our own development and enjoyment and mm-hmm. because we don't know how other people see us, it's actually kind of impossible to know that. So I don't know if that makes sense, but yes, it definitely yeah. is. It definitely is connected yeah. to that. I think all of this comes down to we are just awfully concerned with what other people think. And the silly thing about that is almost no one's paying attention or cares. And that there is yeah. actually something <laughs> enjoyable about finding someone who is truly delighting in something great that you also have grown to appreciate. Do you remember, I I think this was around the start of the pandemic, there were these two teenagers who would um, listen to some classics and they would film themselves on YouTube hearing them for the first time and they would get so Mm -hmm. excited at certain parts of the song and you're like, yes, this is a great song, isn't it? And it's so fun (laughs) to see the youth enjoying them again. It kind of reminds me of that. Like we're afraid to be vulnerable and and in, in delight in something that you feel like you should have already. And instead we actually all really like that. Yeah. Well, I think everybody's afraid to feel silly, but like mm. most, and I think silly that, that comes with vulnerable, you know what I mean? To be happy is to throw your arms out, to dance, to be open. And I think everyone's afraid of that because you kind of have the like, Ooh, what if people think something badly of me or what if I get disappointed or duped or whatever? But, um, but there's, there's so much good in the world that you can't experience unless you're willing to look silly, willing to be vulnerable, willing to try things out. And, um, and so I think, I think the whole enjoyment of things unironically really boils down to that. And honestly, you know, I think if there's anything I've learned from being in academia, so everyone's like a little bit of a poser. So like, just don't worry about it, you know? <laughs> Yeah. 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 hundred <laughs> percent. So um, kind of with that in mind, I'm curious, do you have anything in particular right now that you love unironically? Mm, that's a good question. I'm trying to think what I've been enjoying. I mean, I always enjoy things unironically. 
you know, I'm unironically enjoying right now. I've been doing, I'm curious if you know what this is. Cause I've, I just started doing it and then everyone in my life knows what it is. And I was like, Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, and so I feel very unspecial, which is probably good for me. Um, I'm really enjoying the artist's way by Julia Cameron. Have you ever done that? Oh yeah. I have yeah. not done that, but I've been told I should do that for probably a decade now. So you're yeah. enjoying it. The morning pages. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Yes. I'm yeah. I've been doing, yeah. Everyone knows about the morning pages. Yeah. You, so when you do it, you have to write three, three pages of whatever comes to your brain every single morning. And lately I have just been, I've, I've developed kind of an elaborate morning routine, which is, it's not really that elaborate. It's a really strong cup mm-hmm. of sweet tea with milk, morning pages, and the praise you go podcast. And that just mm-hmm. every morning I do it. And I'm just like, life is good. Um, I don't do it every morning because life is crazy. And so sometimes I miss it, but whenever I do, I'm, I unironically enjoy every part of it. And, um, and it brings me a lot of happiness. That's really cool. I love that. Um, okay. So as we're chatting, Ash Wednesday is in just a few days. I'm curious Mm -hmm. if you have thoughts on Lent. I know that, um, I know you do have thoughts because we've talked about Lent before, but I'm still curious. Um, how are you feeling? Are you feeling ready for it? Do you feel like we've been living in the longest Lent forever or, um, do you feel the need Mm -hmm. for Lent in your own life? I was actually shocked to realize it was next week because I thought it was in two weeks. So I'm kind of Mm -hmm. like in, in, in a, in the last 12 hours, I've been like, oh my gosh, Lent is next week. Um, so if that yeah. answers part of it, um, yeah, it feels a little, cause I think when I think back on the beginning of the pandemic and everything, that was kind of right in Lent, you know, we were all going into Lent and in a way it feels like we yep. just went into Lent and then never really came out. But I think, I think I'm actually, I know this is not maybe what you're supposed to say, but I'm looking forward to Lent. Um, mm. I think, mm-hmm. I think something I've always appreciated about Lent specifically is it gives us room. And in the book, one of my chapters is called befriending sadness. And I think that a part of being happy and experiencing life in its fullness is, is also being willing to look in the face, all those kind of more difficult things. And I feel like Lent gives us an opportunity to befriend sadness, to befriend uh, repentance to befriend mortality mm-hmm. to kind of be to be accompanied together I think most of those things are things we're afraid of partially because they make us feel so alone do you know what I mean when you you think about your own death that if you mm-hmm. it can be quite a lonely thing to think about your own sin can be quite an isolating thing but I think I love Lent because it's an opportunity to befriend all of those heavier things in the company of of other people. And, um, and then also Mm -hmm. with the promise of a feast, do you know what I mean? With the promise of an ending in sight. And so, yep. And I also, I always feel that quite viscerally here because the, it is so dour right now, weather wise. Mm -hmm. Um, but we will, we will come out of Lent. I, yeah, good. No, no, this is, we'll come out in springtime. And so I find a great pleasure in that. I unironically love Lent. I don't know if that's a thing. Um, you know, I tend to have just kind of a melancholy disposition anyway. So Lent has always spoken to me. But to me, it's really helpful to remember that just like in the entire liturgical calendar, we never see a fast without a feast and that we're not fasting mm-hmm. and contemplating our own mortality for its own sake. 
you know, we're doing that to make room for something better. And to me, this speaks into that idea that you're getting at when you talk about aggressively happy, that um, it's not denying the reality of life. It's recognizing its rightful place in the big picture of things Mm -hmm. so that we do keep that in its rightful place in order to make room for the feasting, you know, like really Lent is a season of preparation and that Easter tide is 50 days long, you know, and that Mm. there's something on the other side that Lent is not all there is both literally, Mm. you know, in, in the term, in the way we look at the liturgical calendar, but also in light of eternity, you know, yeah, Mm. this is a long Lent, but this isn't all there is. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I've always loved Lent. Yeah, me too. All right. So as we start winding down, uh, Seth and I always talk about one thing, one simple thing in our lives right now that's just adding more beauty to our days. So I am curious, Joy, what is one little thing that is uh, adding more beauty to your life right now? I am looking at it as we speak, which is that my neighbor's, I think it's an almond tree, um, is beginning to blossom. Mm. And so every time I sit at my desk and I look outside... I, I see this lovely, it's like, you know, it's still, we're just, we're just eking into March. So it's not even quite yet. So it's, it's a little confused. It's a little early, but it is very beautiful and very pink (laughs) and it makes me happy and brings a little beauty into my life every time I look outside. I love that. That's perfect. Exactly right. Um, For me right now, um, my Christmas present from my husband, Kyle was, uh, so I've had this chair. I bought it Goodwill about a decade ago and I love it. It's this old armchair from the 60s. So it's really well made and heavy, um, real wood legs. It's just this like beast of a sturdy chair, um, but it's very ugly. It has been very ugly. The The upholstery was just very ugly and very faded and torn. Um, so my Christmas present was that he had it reupholstered and it is in this lovely kind of sagey greeny uh, velvet. It's mm-hmm. like this perfect cozy. I wanted something that looked like it would belong in a hobbit hole, just, you know, mm. really sweet and cozy and something I would be happy with for the next like 50 years because I wasn't going to do it again because reupholstering chairs is expensive. It turns out Um, we even looked into for a while, like, let's just replace it. Let's get something new. But it's like, no, no, no. I really like my old chair. And so I've been sitting in it every morning with my coffee and with my journal. And it has been adding a lot of beauty, just this silly little chair that I think I bought for 20 bucks at Goodwill, but turns out is now my like prized possession in our home. And I love it. So that's mine. Amazing. That sounds excellent. I love it. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. Well, thank you so much, Joy, for this chat, for hanging out with me from across the pond. It's been delightful. All right. It is time to wrap this up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com. If you like the show and what we are doing here, you can help keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks. At the cost of a cup of coffee or a pint, you can play a big part. You can find the link to do this in the show notes of this episode or at adrinkwithafriend.com. And thank you so much to everyone who's already done this. We are really so very grateful. Also, little reminder that we would love for you to join us in Tuscany this summer. We've got a pilgrimage going and the group is shaping up very nicely, but there is room. There is a spot for you and your friends. So come on along. You can find the link to learn more about our trip also in the show notes of this episode. You can find me and how to connect with me at tishoxenwriter.com. Joy, where can people find you and uh, learn more about your book? Um, you can, I have a website, joyclarkson.com, but also you can find me on all the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, 
uh, as Joy Marie Clarkson or at Join Us the Brave. And the book is Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. Cool. And we will add all of that in the show notes of this episode. So just head there for all the good links. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Joy Clarkson. And Seth and I will be back here around the table with you soon. Thank you so much for listening. 